I'm uh, Amy D. Joy. I'm Executive Director of Development and Communications at National Museums Liverpool, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the third session in the Therapeutic Museum series. This session, Take Notice, will explore some of the research and evaluation methodologies that underpin and support the great work that so many museums um, across the country are now doing for the health and well-being of the individuals and communities that they serve. Um, I'm sure everyone in the room has read Museums Change Lives. And in there, uh, the Museums Association uh, states unequivocally, museums boost people's quality of life and improve mental and physical health. It is good for well-being to engage closely with collections and ideas in the presence of other people. But how can we objectively measure and evaluate the impact of these projects and programs? Is there a consistent methodology that we should all be applying? And how can we as a sector articulate and promote that value in such a way that others, central government, local authorities and business can really sit up and take notice? Um, we've got three lovely speakers um, for today's session, and the first of those is Dr. Helen Chatterjee, who's Head of Research and Teaching at UCL Museums. Helen. Thanks, Amy. Oh, morning, everybody. Nice to see you here. Glad to see some people. We're a little bit worried when we mentioned the word evaluation and measuring that people might be a bit scared off by that. So it's nice to see you here. As Amy said, I'm based at University College London. We've got a great um, array of museums and collections at UCL. And a lot of the work we've been doing around our collections and working with lots of other museums um, around health and well-being has led us to think about the importance of evaluation and incorporating evaluation into the work we do. Um, and what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about a particular toolkit that we've been working on with about 30 different museums that essentially tries to get to the nub of what it is about the work that we do and the impact that it has on individuals' health and well-being. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. I want to start by just telling a little bit of background. Um, we've been working in the area of health and well-being for about five or six years now. Um, we initially started going out to hospitals and care homes about six or seven years ago. Um, essentially, because as you know, at UCL Museums, we've got lots of uh, collections and we have a hospital right across the road from us. We've actually got about six hospitals in our trust. Um, and in the area of Camden, Islington, Hackney nearby, we've got a huge number of uh, residential care homes. And those are the sorts of audiences that we hadn't worked with before. So um, with the, some of the researchers based at UCL, we were lucky enough to get some funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Um, and our research question was essentially what is the potential for museum object handling for interacting with museum collections, with objects, and the encounters that people have with those objects. What's the impact of that sort of session on somebody's health and well-being? So I'm not going to talk a lot about this project, but I just want to give you a little bit of background because it, it sort of foregrounds why we came up with the need for an evaluation model. This was a th three-year project that we did in association um, with the Oxford University Museum and Reading Museum Service and our own museums at UCL. And we work with a whole range of different hospitals and care homes in those regions. Um, we ran about 300 different object handling sessions. Most of these were one-off, one-to-one object handling sessions with people. Um, we did do some group work in psychiatric hospitals. 
Um, and we essentially ran sessions for about 30, 40 minutes. They were standard object handling sessions. And as part of that project, we had to do a lot of thinking about how we were going to assess the impact of these sessions on the patients and residents that we were working with. So as part of that project, we got to do a huge uh, review about the different sorts of measures that are already available for looking at health and well-being. And as some of you may know, there's a huge array of different sorts of measurement techniques out there for looking at health status, quality of life, psychological and subjective well-being. And we reviewed and trialled a lot of these measures as part of this project, and we settled it down to two or three measures that we thought were applicable in this particular settings that we were working with and the sorts of uh, sessions that we were running. And the measures that we decided to use that worked in our particular settings were the visual analogue scale, which you can see up here, which is basically, you'll have seen these before, a 0 to 100 scale, and essentially you can have different sorts of words. We decided to measure people's perceptions of their wellness and their happiness before and at the end of the session. We also decided to use something that was measuring psychological well-being. Again, there's a whole range of different measures for psychological well-being, and we settled on this, which is the positive effect and negative effect scale. And as you can see, there's lots of different words, positive adjectives, negative adjectives, and people rate their perceptions of how they feel about these words, again, before and at the end of the session. This gave us a whole load of statistical data, which I won't go into. These are the sorts of results that you can get from these sorts of data. Um, they give you a before and an after, as I've mentioned. Um, we were working on lots of different settings. And the value of this sort of data is it gives you a, a, an idea of the different impacts of the sessions on these patients before and after the sessions in terms of these different measures that we're working with. So you can break all of those data down into lots of different cohorts and questions about the different participants. So it's a really interesting way of being able to get down to the nitty-gritty of how people react to the sorts of sessions that we were running in relation to those scales. We also did a lot of qualitative work, which I won't go into today, but that enabled us to sort of um, tie up the quantitative and the qualitative aspects, and it really gave it a richness to the sorts of data that we had on the quantitative side that enabled us to dig down a little bit deeper into what it was about the sessions that people, the impact of those sessions that, that we were having on people. As part of that work funded by the HLC, we then went on to do a big review of different activities that were going on in lots of different museums, and lots of those uh, projects you've heard about today and yesterday, you'll, uh, you'll have heard about some of them, and you'll hear more about them to to, uh, later on today. Um, and as part of that work, we realised that there's a lot of great work going on in terms of health and wellbeing, and there's already been a lot of evaluation that's gone on. But one of the big issues that we found was that there isn't a standardised way of collecting this sort of data. Um, if you want to understand the impact of the sessions that you're running on individuals' health and well-being, there isn't actually a standardised way of doing that, and that's fairly standard. Arts in Health has the same problem. Um, and the museums and galleries that we've been working with, we've been working with about 30 different museums and galleries across the UK and abroad. Um, and they all said the same thing, really, which is that they're interested in collecting these sort of data, but actually they need a way to do it that is easy and that's accessible. Um, obviously, we have the, the luck of having a whole university at our disposal and a whole load of academics that can help us statisticians, but obviously not all museums have that. So we were thinking about what sort of toolkit, what sort of measures could museums use and embed in their own practice to get this sort of data out of their sessions. These are just a list of the different museums that we've been working with over the past uh, couple of years, um, developing this toolkit. Um, and if you've got any questions about any specific aspects of that, some of these people are here today, and obviously we'll be around for the rest of the day, so if you want to ask us questions, please do.
So I've mentioned that we did a big review. We built on that. We carried on doing some work around reviewing what sorts of health uh, and well-being, quality of life questions might you want to ask in relation to museum encounters and the impact that that has on individuals. Um, and as part of that, we put together a sort of prototype of different sorts of work that people might be able to embed in their own practice. Um, there's a whole lot of existing questionnaires that we've been using and that other people actually have used something called the Warwick Edinburgh Mental Health, Mental Wellbeing Scale, and that's been used by a number of museums and galleries in the UK and elsewhere. I've talked about VAS already, the Visual Analogue Scales, you'll be familiar with those. We did some work around PANAS, the Positive Effect Negative Effect Scale for Psychological Wellbeing, and that helped us do some further work on that, narrowing it down into a slightly easier to use form, uh, getting rid of some of those adjectives that weren't used very often. So we put together a series of prototypes and that formed our trial pack that our very kind museum volunteers, um, that worked with about 30 odd different staff, um, everyone from museum curators through to education officers and about 200 different participants that ranged in age and background, um, so current users of their museums. And they very kindly worked with us over about a two-year period, trialling all of these different measures so that we could narrow it down to a toolkit that really was hopefully effective for the museums who were participating. And as part of that process, we came up with a series of designs, trying to make this a little bit of a more fun way of assessing well-being and health status. Um, and as part of that, we incorporated into these designs some of these scales that we'd already used in practice ourselves. We came up with this idea of an umbrella, and uh, different people had different ideas about how they might use the umbrella. So some people liked the idea of having an umbrella that you could uh, colour in, and that using, you can see the numbers up here listed, which essentially give a, a quantitative um, idea of people's perceptions, again, before and after, about the different words that are associated um, with the adjectives from this particular measure. And we went through a series of prototype testing stages and we incorporated the different sorts of feedback that people gave us, what these umbrellas should be look, what they should look like, how they should be, the format that they should come in, um, other sorts of ideas. So, for example, people like the idea of using the sessions to generate their own well-being words and to think about actually embedding the discussion about the impact of well-being into the session itself. So even if the session was a completely different session about social history or whatever, the actual concept of incorporating a discussion about individuals' health status and well-being seemed to be quite appealing to a lot of people. So we started coming up with a more formalised scheme for our design for these umbrellas, the wellbeing umbrellas, and we went through a series of, of stages of uh, enhancing the, the look and feel of them, and again testing these with all of our different users in museums and their participants. Um, for example, coming up with our own wellbeing words was a very popular aspect, so we do things like uh, word searches, and this enables to come up with people's perceptions of their own wellbeing and what does that mean. And again, these are the different sorts of uh, ideas that you can incorporate into evaluation, just different ways, essentially, of thinking about how you might define wellbeing. And again, incorporating that into your actual sessions seemed to be very popular with our museums. So I don't want to go in today into a huge amount of detail about what our toolkit looks like. If anybody's interested in it, you can contact me and you can get a copy of it. Um, we've been working, some, doing some further work with our audiences, thinking about how we can have specific toolkits and specific measures for different sorts of audiences. So people had very different perceptions working with older adults than they did with younger adults, and they felt that different measures might be 
uh, more appropriate for one audience than another. So we've been developing some audience-specific toolkits um, and also thinking about um, not using things like words. So for some people, for example, if English isn't your first language or if you're not feeling very literate, then, for example, words might be a bit off-putting and actually writing or thinking about words is off-putting for some cohorts. So, for example, using uh, different facial expressions might be one approach. So this is sort of ongoing work and we're really interested in getting people's opinions and ideas about the idea of using a well-being measure and incorporating the toolkit into your own work. Um, the reason is that we're very keen to try and have a consistent way of collecting these sort of data. I'm very interested in working with lots of different museums and galleries across the UK and elsewhere because what we've our main aim is to essentially collect a big body of evidence and data. There's already a huge amount of great work out there that museums are doing. And if we work together as a cohort of bodies collecting the same sorts of data, then we have a stronger voice and we have a stronger body of evidence to advocate for the impact of this work on individuals' health and well-being. And as Amy mentioned, that's one of our big objectives, those of us that have been working in health and well-being for a long time. So the more people that can gather the same sorts of data, the stronger that, that database is and the stronger that evidence base is for advocating for the impact of the work that we do on individuals' health and well-being. So I'm going to end there. If you're interested in finding anything more about our toolkit, you can access it here. It's currently available on PDF, or you can just email me and I can send you a copy. Um, we've also written up a lot of the work that we've been doing around health and well-being in a new book, which is called Museums Health and Wellbeing. This is the plug. <laughs> and um, you can actually get 30% off today, so you're very lucky. <laughs> and you can buy it downstairs. So thank you very much. Thanks very much to Amy and Carol for organising it. I think it's been a really great event so far. So thank you very much. Well, I, for one, am all for a well-being measure. I think um, the more we can measure the same things in the same way, um, the more chance we have to advocate our message very clearly to the widest possible audience. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Kerry Wilson, who is Head of Research at the Institute of Cultural Capital in Liverpool. Kerry. I've been so worried about making that walk in high heels. I did it. <laughs> but I've still got to get back. <laughs> um, well, to complement um, the talk on kind of standardised measures, I want to talk a little bit about the contextual value of what museums do within the very specific context of dementia care. And I'm going to refer to a recent evaluation of um, National Museum Liverpool's House of Memories programme, which hopefully most of you will be aware of. Um, speaking as somebody who does a lot of applied research and evaluation and impact studies in the sector, the, the idea of context is becoming increasingly more important as I see it. Thinking about the very lively debate we had this morning on, on funding and other issues, um, we really need this kind of research to be more persuasive and believable maybe than ever before. And traditionally speaking, that there are some kind of conventional problems associated with evaluation research is quite a problematic area for a number of reasons. Um, one main problem is being very accurate in how we describe the causal impact that cultural interventions have. Often these studies don't account for other variables, so you know that they are questioned quite often in terms of um, the impact that they're trying to describe. Within this is a kind of more broader general debate around the instrumental versus intrinsic value 
of the sector. You know, um, should we really be concentrating on social and health outcomes? Why can't we celebrate art for our sake and all that kind of thing? But for your interventions that have a very deliberate instrumental focus, that this can sometimes undermine the, the value of what you do, I think is not necessarily helpful, particularly when instrumental and intrinsic value are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Often these studies don't um, focus enough on the collaborative dimension of um, health-related interventions. It tries to focus too solely on the value of the, the cultural intervention itself and doesn't often consider enough the added value that's created by two sectors coming together. Um, you know, we, we often don't deliver these projects in isolation, so why try to evaluate them in that way? And as um, Helen's already said, there are huge problems in terms of methodological approaches. You know, what's the best approach to use? How can we standardize them? How can we make them more believable and more effective? Um, my argument is that contextual approaches um, kind of enable us, provide a better rationale for more flexible methodological approaches in some cases. So that's the kind of um, foundation for my talk, really. Moving on to House of Memories, um, a, a really quite brilliant intervention in my objective opinion as, as the evaluator. Um, it's led by National Museums of Pool, as I've said. It's, it's a very specific tailored dementia care training intervention. And it was rolled out. It's originally delivered in the Museum of Liverpool here in the city. But in spring of this year, it was rolled out to three um, separate gallery services across the north of England. And um, Carol told me this morning it's now been delivered to 3,000 plus participants, which is pretty amazing in the time that it's been delivered. It's a full day collaborative programme with an arts partner and, and museums as a lead, a museum service as a lead. And it uses dramatic interpretation, interactive group discussion, museum collections and museum staff skills in a, in a kind of reminiscent therapy capacity to ultimately raise awareness of the condition of dementia and enable those affected to live well live well with the condition and that includes those directly affected and those who care for them. For the evaluation um, of the Northern model, we used a realistic evaluation approach. This is devised by um, two researchers called Pawson and Tilly. This is an, a methodologically groundbreaking approach. It's more of a framework that encourages us to consider in, in quite close detail the relationship between context the mechanisms, how a programme has been delivered, and the outcomes that it achieves. And um, for the purpose of this evaluation, um, Carol and the team were particularly interested in the kind of transferability and adaptability of the House of Memories, of the existing House of Memories model. So realistic evaluation allowed, allowed us to look quite closely at, at how it works in different contexts and the distance travelled for those taking part. So the evaluation... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not... I'm so sorry. There you go, that's a summary of House of Memories. So from the evaluation findings, um, there are three different contexts that I think are of relevance to the conference today and that are really quite interesting for us to explore the impact of House of Memories. The first is the professional context of the programme. As I mentioned, we wanted to look at the distance travelled um, for participating healthcare workers. So we undertook a series of pre-training interviews with, with their stratified sample to ask them about their motivations to attend alongside other factors such as their existing experience of working with museums and the cultural sector. These interviews revealed um, 
a very strong desire for more creative, inclusive training methods that move beyond kind of traditional didactic methods that, that you might experience in the healthcare sector. They were looking for cost-effective, adaptable tools and resources. And ultimately, they wanted to develop a more empathic and intuitive care practice within their um, professional environments across the full range of services that were taking part in House and Memories. And these include those um, that, uh, that care, deliver care services directly and those that also have a kind of ancillary training function or advisory function. So it's a full breadth of um, health services involved in, in dementia. The evaluation has um, revealed quite clear causal evidence and a really profound impact in terms of the way that um, care is practiced in these various settings. And they really kind of reinforce the unique value of museums in improving the culture of care. And we, ca we have been able to relate this quite directly to the characteristics of the programme. And these include informed, reliable content. Uh, the House of Memories programme is very well researched. Um, Participants could plate their trust in the authority of the information that they're being given in terms of how dementia is presented and the various implications of the condition. The, re the relevance of museum collections and resources in terms of reminiscence therapy techniques and their personal resonance with them was also very important. And just as important, the engaging and impersonal skills of museum staff responsible for delivering the programme. Together, that package has really had a quite profound impact on those taking part. Now, this will be very familiar to those of you that work in the sector. Um, museums have a very recognisable capacity and function in terms of empathy training in various different contexts, and the work of Lois Silverman on the social work of museums reinforces this quite nicely. So this isn't... Um, this will be something that you've heard before, but it's very important for NML to have this evidence in terms of the work that they're doing with the dementia care community. Again, this has been further enhanced by the extent to which participants are continuing to engage with House of Memories beyond the training. And um, it really enforces the value of House of Memories as an intermediary function in a professional development capacity. NML are not making grand statements about um, the impact of the programme on improving dementia or curing dementia or anything like that, any of those problems that we've um, identified earlier in terms of impact, health and wellbeing impact in the sector it's undeniably having a very powerful impact in terms of cross-sector professional development. A second interesting contextual element is the emotional um, capacity of the programme. I was very pleased to see that Emotional Museums is a strand for this conference because as somebody who, who does this kind of research, we try to avoid emotional outcomes and context where we can because we're quite fearful of coming across as over-sentimental and that policy makers and budget holders and decision makers will somehow, you know, be less interested in those kind of outcomes, but um, they really are powerfully important in the, case, in the case of House of Memories. The high levels of trust, empathy and personal resonance established by the programme, these are important qualities in the context of providing dementia care, and they really matter a lot in the context of this kind of intervention and, and really shouldn't be understated. These, these kind of emotional elements have been reinforced by the team, by the extent to which they're creating, they continue to create a community of practice and interest around the programme. Um, participants don't just attend the one day and then that's it. They very much feel part of a, a bigger learning environment. Um, and this is represented by um, follow-on events at the museum, such as celebration days, 
There's a very active online community attached to House of Memories um, via social media, newsletters and that kind of thing. So I think participants really feel like they're part of something that's ongoing and, and really quite sustainable. And speaking as a research on the programme, I've been invited to these events by the team and, and it really makes me feel like part of it as well. And I think there's a very strong um, case for um, NML for finding really quite powerful ethical leadership in that context. I would encourage all of you to visit House of Memories website and become part of this community yourself. There's a particularly lovely video of a celebration event that was held in Liverpool in May and I'm getting quite choked just thinking about it so I would encourage you to look at that. It's a really beautiful representation of the programme. So thirdly, um, obviously there's a very strong policy context for House of Memories both in terms of cultural policy and public policy more broadly. And I think NML and any researcher attached to the programme has a responsibility to kind of situate its outcomes in a bigger picture of these national objectives. Um, it was originally funded by the Department of Health, so there's a kind of obvious rationale for it, but I think in terms of sustainability and, and evidence and the true value of the programme, it's important to do that anyway. And just an example of, um, a couple of examples of, of current policies that are particularly relevant. Obviously, there's a Prime Minister's challenge on dementia, um, which prioritises improved diagnosis rates, improved standards in hospital homes and domiciliary care, improved information provision for people with dementia from their carers and better support for carers. We can see quite clearly how House of Memories is contributing to these objectives. Um, more broadly speaking, in terms of healthcare and NHS reform, there's an explicit focus on standards of care, as I'm sure you're all aware. Lots of publicity about um, failing trust. I don't want to go into that too much, but the Cavendish Review has made a series of recommendations further to that on how we can be much more rigorous in terms of professional development in the healthcare sector more broadly, and I think museums definitely have a role to play there. In terms of cultural policy, the current cultural value debate, previously described as impact, previously described as all kinds of things, um, but DCMS and associate organisations taking this much more seriously now, and I think um, House of Memories has several learning outcomes in that context too. And, and again, other kind of policy areas that simmer along in the background, such as the big society and localism, we have a really strong example of collaborative working here that can be celebrated quite loudly, I think. Um, having talked about those lovely um, interesting contextual implications, I, I hate to bring it back to the question of economics, but obviously there are like, some serious considerations here in terms of what value can be placed on something like House of, Me House of Memories as a, a true professional development training intervention. Um, economic value, unfortunately, following on from the conversation we had this morning, is a pragmatic necessity, and uh, I think there is much to learn uh, in terms of these how these contextual factors can be brought together and in an economic context. Methods, again, need careful consideration, and in terms of future development of research we want to do at the Institute of Cultural Capital, we're currently working with Mercy Care NHS Trust, which is the local mental health care trust, looking at the economic value of their of various ranges of creative and cultural interventions, and we hope to work with NML on a continuing basis in that capacity, because NML is a value partner of the healthcare trust. Also, we're inspired in, um, to look at, uh, from a much more psychological point of view, the, the alchemic process that takes place between these kind of interventions and the, the levels of empathy generated amongst health, amongst health care providers. We think there's something quite interesting there. So hopefully, ultimately, 
this can all lead to quite a, a holistic message on, on the value of, of House of Memories and other similar interventions. Thank you for your time and thank you for having me. Um, summaries of individual projects can be found on our website. Um, please follow us on Twitter and um, let me know if you'd like any further information. Thank you. Thanks very much, Kerry. That was um, a really good foil to Helen's presentation in that it makes us think about that holistic need for a case study approach as well to evidential data um, and the importance of looking at all aspects of these projects um, uh, in order to assess their, their value and their impact. Um, now on to our third and final speaker today. Um, it's Tony Butler, the Director of Museum of East Anglian Life. Tony, over to you. It's quite a long walk, isn't it? It's a good job I didn't wear my high heels. Okay, I'm going to talk for 15 minutes about <clears throat> our, the research that we've been carrying on through the Happy Museum project. Um, so the Happy Museum was set up in 2010, and its, and, and its idea was to encourage museums to, as it says here, contribute to a sustainable future by fostering well-being that doesn't cost the earth. And a lot of our, our influences came primarily from the green movement. So our, our um, research is, not, is more upstream. So it's helping museums to support well-being in society in general. And to do that, we focus both on um, change for individuals affected by our work, but also organisational and sector change. So since 2011, we funded 22 museums <clears throat> in England and Wales to carry out a variety of projects which, is, which explore the connections between well-being and care for surroundings and, and, and our environment. We published a paper in 2011, of which there are very few copies left now, called A Tale of How It May Turn Out All Right, which was written with the New Economics Foundation. And this whole, the whole therapeutic um, museum strand, I think, has been, in, in, been um, influenced by Neff's Five Ways to Wellbeing. At the end of the paper, we, uh, we concocted six principles for happy museums. And it's the last of those six that I'm going to talk about today. So we believe that counting visitors tells us nothing about the quality of experiences or the contribution of a museum to the people's well-being. And we encourage people to listen to the debate about measuring happiness, um, looking at the Office for National Statistics and their research into happiness. And we wanted people to hear what think tanks and academics have to say about the subject. So it's fascinating living, listening to the previous two speakers about the methodologies that they've developed. We want museums to ask audiences to find out how their work affects them emotionally. And we would encourage museums not to wait for somebody else to design the perfect metrics and to have a go at looking at their own way of measuring well-being. Because we think that happiness and well-being will be short-lived in museums if museums achieve it for this generation, but don't think about the environmental expense for the next. So our approach took, took, took three um, perspectives. First of all, we think our learning and evaluation is terribly important for advocacy. I think probably everybody that is doing evaluation 
has a, uses their research for advocacy purposes, but we wanted museums to also learn and learn from the responses of individuals. But thirdly, and I think this is where, it, for us, it was really important, was to ensure that the process of learning empowered people who were participating in activities. So it supports society and encourages people to be active citizens, which then go on to develop mutual relationships between participants, organisations and individuals. So we've taken a, a, a range of, um, of, of approaches to measuring what matters. So at local level, for the, for the organisations that we've funded, we want people to understand how it affects those organisations as a whole. We also wanted to take an approach that had national recognition um, that would be very useful for advocacy. And the approaches that we wanted to take brought together qualitative and quantitative research. And to do, by, so, by, so by combining stories with numbers, we get a, a much more um, accurate idea of how our museums contribute to well-being. So the, the whole project, <coughs> the whole of the Happen Museum program, has been evaluated using the story of change methodology. And sometimes this is called logic modeling. So it establishes a shared long-term vision at the beginning and asks what difference we want to make. And then it works backwards, logically, to plan what we need to do and how we need to do it, and eventually deciding where we should invest. So, an ex so every Happy Museum program that has been funded, every Happy Museum museum that has been funded, has had to provide their own story of change. Now, obviously, you can read all of this, but this is the story of change for the for Slough Museum, and they've been working with Ike Saith, which is a um, a multi-faith youth youth group, and it's been building connections within and across the society, in and community within Slough. So their vision was to understand and appreciate the multiple identities of young people in Slough. That was their starting point. So working backwards, they identified that it was young people who could influence the future story of Slough and the wider connections. But to make that difference, um, the community needed to make new relationships so that partners within, that, uh, within Slough understood each other. And activities to ensure that happened um, consisted of developing a community allotment and engineering happenings within the organization. And eventually, they decided that the best way to um, commit to these programs was not to invest money, but to invest time in training people and, and, and building up people within the, the knowledge of people within that community. So the story of change was a really useful framework for, for these museums to develop. <clears throat> but we also encouraged individual museums to find their own ways of measuring um, well-being within their, both within their projects and within their organizations. So I'm gonna just talk um, of two, about three or four of those um, individual activities. So the first, again, you can't read this, but this, this is a, an example of some observational evaluation that was carried out at Manchester Museum we supported Manchester Museum to develop the Playful Museum con context, which encouraged um, visitor service, the visitor services team within that organization to um, enable play within the galleries. 
So they looked at different types of behavior and observed them over time. So that on a practical level, that was manifesting giving out all the front-of-house staff iPads to, to, um, to note down different behaviors within the galleries. So in this instance, they've looked at um, types of behavior when an adult was involved, looking at the creative response, identifying when multiple children played together, and where imagination predominated. And this observation evaluation both gave real-time um, feedback, but also encouraged front-of-house staff to be practically involved with developing, um, uh, developing research. Secondly, um, Reading Museum, uh, a project we funded to support them to develop work within neighborhood action groups, used a time capsule approach. So in, in the sessions that we devised there, participants were asked to pick up cards that represented their view of the neighborhood and put them in a time capsule which was then sealed until the end of the project. When the exercise was repeated, <coughs> this allowed a, a cross-sectional analysis of any changes in their opinion. So by sorting words alphabetically, it was easy to see how their opinions had changed. So the, the second sessions saw the introduction of new keywords within their people's opinions. So words like beautiful and historic um, were, were, were manifest, whereas in the first instance, over half the words had negative connotations. In the first instance, only 14% of um, responses were positive about the program and about Reading Museum. And by the second session, over 40% of people registered positive um, opinions of the organization and, their, and the place where they lived. The Story Museum in, in Oxford used a very simple methodology called the mood tree. Um, where they, and this was learnt from a school teacher who used it in her primary school class. The museum used, used colour-coded leaves, which could be fixed to a modelled tree at the beginning and an end of an exhibition. So red, orange and green leaves indicated bad, or well, red and orange leaves indicated bad or sort of so-so moods, and green indicated a very positive mood. And at the end of the, end of the activity or at the end of the day, the leaves on the, each tree could be collected to see if there was an improvement in individuals' well-being. And as you can see, in this, it, there's obviously a lot of well-being in the Story Museum in Oxford because there's a very green tree there. So aside from um, individual organisations trying out different methodologies, the, the project as a whole is looking to create um, a, a, a body of um, research which both can be used um, as advocacy and, and, and nationally. So on a national level, we engaged a happiness economist called Daniel Fujiwara, who is at the LSE. And Daniel's been developing um, well-being measurement for the Treasury's Green Book and is working with a number of OECD countries in developing metrics for, for well-being. So we, we commissioned him to do a well-being evaluation of, of um, activities within museums. So this looks at the relationship between um, well-being and the activities that a museum does by using the Taking Part survey. So Taking Part is a DCMS um, body of evidence that um, has over 14,000 res um, individual responses, which looks at self-reported, which looks at participation within culture. And he used that to, and he ran that against some metrics from the um, Office for National Statistics household panel um, survey, which, which looks at um, subjective well-being. 
So the results of this, th th actually this report has the most algebra I've ever seen in a, in a, in a, in a museum research program. Um, and I still quite, don't quite understand how it all works out, but, but it's all very good. But he used a cost-benefit analysis approach, which showed that over the, the value to people's happiness for visiting museums is £3,200 per person, which compares very favor favorably to being in an audience in the arts at £2,000 per person and participation in the arts at £1,500. Some of the numbers were, were quite startling because we assumed that people's well-being would be greater if they were participating and being active. But the, the numbers that came back from this, um, this survey show that, that merely visiting a museum is, um, gave, gave people a, a greater sense of well-being. So the next phase of, of um, research in this area is looking at why those numbers came back as they did. One of the reasons we think is that the, if, you, if you're a participant in arts or sport or other cultural activities, you're, you tend to be an extrovert, so you've got a higher standard of kind of well-being before you start. Um, whereas at, if you visit a museum on a kind of solitary basis, you may be more introverted. So the starting point is kind of lower. But we do think that perhaps um, visiting a museum is really good for shy people. Some more research is needed there. So, this, to, to, so we, we think the story of change is a really engaging way of me measuring progress. Um, and it's had quite in interesting impacts on uh, the museums that we've, we've supported, aside from carrying out their projects. So the Imperial War Museum North has now used um, <clears throat> the story of change to reevaluate the, the, um, the whole leadership of the organisation. And Story of Change is now being used to, it's contributing to Imperial Museum's overall vision. The tools that have been created by, by individual organisations has made them more focused and resilient. So the Story Museum's mood tree and, and, and happy tracker, which is geared towards staff, has helped them get to know, help the individuals within that organisation get to know each other better. As they've been setting up a new museum and it's made that organisation more resilient. Commissioning Daniel, Daniel Fujiwara to do the work on, on the valuation of um, museums has, has raised the profile of Happy Museum, and we'll be talk, we're talking at the all-party parliamentary group for well-being in December, and I think Helen Goodman will be there, so she'll meet again. But our next phase is to invite museums to participate in a new survey that we're going to be carrying out between now and the end of the financial year. So we'd like to make sure that the museum sector really drives well, the, the well-being agenda from the inside out. And Happy Museum is inviting museums across the country to be part of this research project to uncover what it is in museums that creates well-being and whether participation or visiting is most valuable. So we want museums to participate and to, to, to um, find out how they, create, how they can create well-being and how significant well-being is to their organisation. We also will quantify that to you as well using cost-benefit analysis so that you can show funders or commissioners the value of the work that we do. So the research will draw together our findings from the three years of commissioned museums and other research literature <coughs> out there as well. And we've, we've, we've called it the clues survey. So these are the areas in which um, we'll, be, we'll be measuring. And it also links to um, the life satisfaction survey that the ONS are carrying out. So it doesn't matter how big your museum is, we're looking at small, medium and large organisations from voluntary to academic organisations. And all you need to do 
is to sign up and we'll provide you with both the survey and some interesting ideas about how to gather that information. And for us, you need to survey at 30 people or more. They can be volunteers, they can be staff, they can be visitors, before and after an activity. And then we'll run it through um, the, the economic model, both to show how you can generate well-being, but also the value of what you do. So if you want to sign up to, the, to this, this um, activity, it's free and the website is happymuseum.org. If you just Google Happy Museum, you'll be able to find out more information. And that's the, that's the website. So, we talked, so I've talked about <coughs> metrics and I've talked about how we measure, but I would also like to, I want to remember that what we do is about people. And I'm going to finish off um, talking about the um, a fantastic project. I think Joe Jones is in the audience. Hello. Um, this is a project we funded in Canterbury called the Paper Apocathry. And it was a, <coughs> a, a fantastic installation where um, Anime Arts <coughs> came into the, the organisation and created a, uh, a, a temporary chemist shop made entirely of recycled paper. And they work with um, schools and young people's groups and, and uh, community groups to find out what, what created well-being within their communities and how things in the museum would link to those to well-being and you would come into the museum and you would get your prescription for well-being it was a fantastic project won, won a few awards as well but they had some feedback from a member of the public and I just want to read this because it's lovely <clears throat> she said dear Kim I was feeling a bit low this afternoon when I headed into Canterbury town and I got even lower when I couldn't find any suitable envelopes in WH Smith's I guess that Basil and Bond <clears throat> and the like are virtually redundant these days they only had office type envelopes and flashy shiny ones on a whim, I headed to our revamped beanie <coughs> in the front gallery where I found the paper apocryphy, made totally from card and paper. What a wonderful, wonderful experience. I shared my issue with the chemist, and with a little thought and consideration, she retrieved her recommended cultural treatment from one of the numerous drawers, a super drawing and poem by Louis from Parkside School. Thanks, Louis. Her assistant wrote down the treatment for me and directed me to the People and Places Gallery, to see the painting I'd been prescribed to look at and the place in my memory. <clears throat> the Angel Over Canterbury by Sarah Wicks, Sarah Wicks was all, already familiar to me, but it was delightful to see it again with fresh eyes. <clears throat> in the process, I got talking to another client visiting the Apocryphy, and we ended up exchanging email addresses. I left the beanie in a far more buoyant mood and walked back by the, I walked back by the river with a spring in my step. If you haven't been treated by the paper apocryphy, I'd certainly recommend a visit, and soon it will be shutting on Sunday. Many thanks to all involve, involved, and this is a really interesting project. Sue, three kisses. <clears throat> so, when we, when we talk about measurement and we talk about numbers, we also need to remember that it's real people that matter, and real people's responses are the things that will really create well-being within our organisations. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Tony. That was great. Um, really look forward to seeing the outcome, in fact, taking part in the um, wellbeing valuation survey that you're planning. Um, there's time for questions, um, and we'd love to have lots of questions, so lights up, thanks. Um, there's 
Ellie and Izzy are going around with roving mics. So any questions, please put your hands up. And while you're thinking, um, just to say that Joanne Bartholomew, who's the chair of the UK Medical Collections Group. Joanne, where are you? Oh, wave, excellent, just um, on the upper level. Um, she is currently working with Helen and colleagues um, and has some case studies on health and wellbeing outcomes. Um, copy of it is here and she has met, Joanne has many more and if you'd like any, um, she'll happily hand them to you as you leave today. Um, questions, comments? Oh, yes, thank you. Hi. Um, <clears throat> oh. Could you say, sorry, we didn't quite hear that. Could you say your name and where you're from again? Daniel Hadley, Wafer Hadley Consultants. It's a, it's a question for Helen, actually. You mentioned that you, um, you did some qualitative research as well. Could you tell us a bit about the role of that within the project? What was the advantage of doing more depth qual as well as the quantitative research that you did? Yeah, uh, well, I guess the value, can you guys hear me okay? The value really was getting, um, the, the, providing a more contextual background to, to the perceptions of the, the sessions. So the metrics gave us some great statistical data for proving, essentially. We got statistically significant results for all of our participants. We were about 300 people. So that was great for saying statistically, X people had this percentage increase in their perception of happiness or well-being, or in this particular positive adjective. But what it didn't tell us is exactly how the people felt about the session. So we recorded all of the sessions using an audio recorder, and then we used a, a range of different qualitative methods. And it just really gave a richness to the sorts of data that we had out. And we now would only really use mixed methods when we do any sorts of evaluation. And it's, I think it's the combination of having both um, was the value. Um, it's great having qualitative methods on their own, but I think the quantitative adds that statistical robustness. We had to use quantitative methods because our health partners absolutely insisted on it, didn't understand why we wanted to do qualitative methods at all. But I think post hoc realised the advantage in, the, in giving that depth to the individual stories and also providing a context to the study and a deeper understanding of the impact of the sessions, not just on the participants, we also work with staff as well and also their carers and family members. So it really helped with that side of it as well. Uh, yes, thank you. Over there. Hmm? Oh, yes, yes. Thank you. I'm Carol Scott. I'm the chair of the International Council of Museums in the UK and an evaluator. And just thank you to the whole panel. I, I think that was a, a session of, of tremendous substance. And so I very much appreciated the insights that all the speakers have given to us. Um, my question, in a way, is, is for Kerry, because I think um, your presentation, you made a point about context being particularly important and how we really need to acknowledge all the variables. And my, my interest is that when we're trying to assess, and I think you put it as the unique value of museums within a clinical context, how do we actually isolate that? When you've, when you've made the point that in fact there are a whole series of other factors around that in terms of delivery and in terms of the you know, the, the clinical context which is impacting on that. I'd be re very interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the distance traveled approach helps a lot. So we need to do selection of participants before the training took place so we know what their um, kind of learning objectives were and that what they wanted to get from the program. We can make a safe assumption that 
they, they weren't receiving that from anywhere else. Um, that was the motivation to attend. And then um, by process of participant observation, by actually being there, um, attending the courses ourselves, actively taking part in the, the various activities with the participants, we can see that kind of learning process in action. So we can see cause and effect actually taking place, if you like. So we know what the people are looking out for. We can see it happening. And then also we went through a process of post-training interviews up to four weeks after each programme had took place. So we can then actually talk to them, you know, where, you, where your expectations met. And we used a, a critical incident framework for that. We wanted them to actually describe how it had been achieved and what the relationship was with the programme. And we also asked them to describe how they were kind of reapplying what they'd learnt in the workplace. So there was a clear clear learning process that had taken place that we could attribute directly to taking part in, in House of Memories. Um, I admit we didn't ask if that had been <laughs> substantiated by anything else, but it, it was kind of enough to go through that process to be able to establish the cause and effect that had taken place. Thank you. Okay. Uh, oh, there's a few questions now. Um, lady at the front first, then the lady in the blue there, and then Carol in the middle. Hello everybody, my name is Deepo, I'm from Stage Text. I have a question because a lot of the research seems to be linking to older people, younger people, and I feel there isn't enough research looking at disability. It's very easy to do like physical things, you know, like touching things, like these are problems that can be solved, and looking at numbers of attendees, and looking at soft access as well, like provision of um, BSL or speech text, whatever. It's looking at that level there, that level of engagement, where we can elicit that data. I feel that's not been done there in terms of research is lacking. Is there anything in the horizon that's going to perhaps redress that balance? Because I think that links to funding, you know, funding streams. You know, I think, you know, in today's economy, it's very crucial that we do look at this. And, you know, looking at access, it's not just a sexy thing, shall we say. It's... It's becoming, you know, more practical, so we need to research in that particular event. So I don't know if you would agree or disagree with that hypothesis. Panel, Helen, do you want to start and then Thank you. That's a really interesting question. I think you're right, that, and it, this did come out with a lot of the museums we work with. They do work with disability groups and special needs groups, and they really found that the sorts of approaches that are currently available for assessing the impacts actually um, weren't suitable for those groups. But I think you're right, there isn't, uh, the current techniques don't always take into account people, for example, that's why we were talking about the idea of um, even just simple things of using words, so if you're visually impaired, uh, you know, th that's not going to work for some people. So um, the, there is a dearth of that, but I think museums do want to tackle it, but I think, again, it's, it's the issue of how they do that and, and the sorts of support they need. Um, I think the best way to do it is to work with organisations, perhaps like the organisation that you work with. Um, and I think museums are more interested in having those sorts of collaborations these days. So I think it's more about forming the right sorts of partnerships when you're making up your projects. I, I, I agree with that. Most of our work has been looking at population level um, well-being. So it hasn't specifically geared towards um, individual, you know, individual groups. So and the control measures required to uh, you know, understand um, how well-being impacts, impacts on different, diff different groups is, is, is not, it's not work that we've done, but I think you're absolutely right. There's, 
there's, there's, there's much more that can, that can be done. But if you're talking about self-reporting um, health and well-being, then <clears throat> to get accurate um, uh, data, the, the control groups are required, and it's you need you, you probably need a number of museums to um, to participate in something, to, so you get proper control measures. Um, so, so one-off projects for isolated organisations probably won't give you enough detail um, in, in 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 the round. So you, so yeah, I mean, that's probably another research project for somebody else to to find a a, a cohort of organisations that are working with in, in, in specific areas, so you get a decent control control groups. Thank you. Next question, thank you. Hi, I'm Katie King from Manx National Heritage on the Isle of Man. It's probably more a question for NML, really. We've heard a lot um, over the two days about House of Memories, and I'm particularly interested in whether you offer any training for uh, museum staff so that we could benefit from um, what, what, what you've learned so that we can come and perhaps do our own House of Memories back where we live. Well, we have some House of Memories people in the audience, so I think it's best if they answer that question just down in the middle here. But yes, we do. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yes, we do. We have opened up the training for museum colleagues as well as social care colleagues. In fact, the whole programme is for both sectors to learn together. And um, we're just, for anybody that's based in Birmingham, Leicester or Nottingham, we've just received confirmation of funding from the Department of Health that February next year we will be taking the programme to those areas. So if you're interested, please do get on our website and have a look. Um, it's been really important, and I think, you know, as many of colleagues have said, to learn together, both to gain the right evidence and articulate it well, but actually there's a shared journey we've found has been really impactful for the museum sector and the health sector. So the answer is yes, we are doing that. Um, can I ask a question? Because Yes, all right, it was now to you've Tony, got the mic. Really quickly to Tony, I'm really interested in the clues survey. I think that that is a, a great initiative. And, and, and it takes me back to thinking about inspiring learning for all. Um, and thinking about um, the, the learning outcomes and the social outcomes that we're measuring. Is this an opportunity for our sector to really think about um, um, health and well-being outcomes that we can all own? Yes, but also in concert with Helen's work. I mean, we, we talked yesterday about how we can, because there's obviously some overlap, and to a degree we've been developing this stuff independently, so we perhaps need to work together. Um, but there's, yes, there is. The, the, our, the evaluator on Happy Museum is... Mandy Barnett, and she um, penned a chapter in a, in a, in a um, paper that was published by the RSA last Tuesday called um, Towards a, a New Political Economy for Arts and Culture. So Mandy and Daniel have, have, have um, put forward a, a range of suggestions about how we measure impact, and she's, talk, she's talking about trying to develop metrics that can show cultural return on investment. Um, so for, for many years we've been doing lots of economic impact study. Everyone's got an economic impact study. And things like social return on investment have been used um, more broadly within the sector. My organisation had a social SROI done on our community learning programmes. But I think there's also a need to try and measure a, the cultural return as well. So you can, I mean, you can measure anything, um, but use, finding meaningful ways with metrics that everybody can use that show the, the cost-benefit analysis of culture, I think would be really good. So we're starting some work, but I think there's, there's lots of other organisations and people like John Nell, um, who's, a, who, who's done a lot of work around in Manchester, have looked at 
um, developing the, these sort of new metrics to measure the cultural return in, in, in what we do. So if you want to talk to me about it after, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert, I'm a museum curator, but there's lots of people that we're working with that have um, greater knowledge. And, and, but I think it's a really interesting area, and there's a sort of a dilettante. I, I quite, it's something quite fascinating about putting numbers to stuff that we do that's, that is very emotional and very engaged with individuals. <clears throat> and any increase in this body of knowledge has got to be good for advocacy with funders and you know, people that we're trying to influence. Thank, thank you very much. Um, I think we're about running out of time. Unless there is another urgent question, important question, do, do come and talk to the speakers um, at the end. But just to say that uh, the final um, therapeutic museum session is at five past three this afternoon um, under the heading Keep Learning. So I hope um, that many of you, all of you, will be able to attend that. Um, and can I just say thank you very much for coming and a very big thank to all our speakers. Thank you. Thank you.